welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction, writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. I'm here today with Linda Cardillo, who is a wonderful novelist. She writes both contemporary and historical. The novel that we're talking about today is Love That Moves the Sun, about the romance between the, the Renaissance poet Vittoria Colonna and Michelangelo. So Linda, what made you decide to write this story? It all began years ago when my agent suggested to me after I'd written four contemporary books that were actually set in the early and mid 20th century. And she said, have you ever thought about writing historical fiction? And I really had not, but I thought it was worth exploring. And because I had already written two books that were focused on Italian families, because that's my heritage, I thought, well, if I'm going to write historical fiction, I think the place I would start would be Italy. And what's more interesting as a historical period in Italy than the Renaissance? And I did something very basic and simple. I just Googled Italian women artists in the Renaissance because I thought I thought of art and I thought maybe there are some women artists. And indeed, uh, the first thing that popped up was a, a listing about an exhibition at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. They had mounted an exhibition of Italian women artists from the Renaissance to the Baroque. The catalog was magnificent and contained beautiful color um, plates, but also biographies, detailed biographies of the artists. But what I discovered is that most of the artists who had interesting lives had already had books written about them or movies made about them. And I thought, well, I'd rather do something, find someone who's not been discovered yet. And in this catalog, there were several scholarly articles about the role that women of nobility and wealth had played in influencing the arts at the time. And that is where I discovered Vittoria Colonna. And it was sort of intriguing to me that she was a poet and that she had commissioned uh, a painting of Mary Magdalene from Titian, which I found and I thought, well, this let's explore a little bit more about this woman. And I just sort of took off from there. And so, yeah, that's where it all began with a catalog from an art museum. You know, um, I, find, I find visual art really inspiring in writing historical fiction. I'm the one of the things I miss most about uh, this lockdown, the pandemic is not being able to go to an art gallery, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> just to be yeah. able to walk around and look at the paintings and, and enter into the time. So how much, how much of that did you actually do? What were the visual things that you referred to and got inspired by when you were yeah, writing? I, I did two things. One is two trips to Italy, research trips to Italy, where I was actually able to walk in Vittoria's footsteps. The castle on the island of Ischia, where she spent um, most of her childhood and early married life, 
is still in existence, although the castle itself is in ruins. The Isoleta, the small island, and the fortifications are still there, and you can walk uh, through this volcan volcanic mountain, which is the only way to get onto the island, and then you can walk all the way up to the citadel where the castle once stood. And so I had a very sort of visceral experience of what she would have seen and smelled and just how the the landscape would have affected her. I did the same thing in Rome, the Colonna Palace, which is her ancient Roman family's palace, is still in existence. And in fact, the Colonna family is still in existence and still lives there. But on Saturday mornings, they open their gallery and the, the sort of formal apartments. So I was again able to experience what her life was whenever she was in Rome and the Vatican. So those those trips were extremely important for me to get a sense of place. And then the Metropolitan Museum in New York mounted a major exhibition of Michelangelo about two years, three years ago. And it was quite extensive, both paintings and sculpture. And the Met had actually recreated the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel on flat screen TVs up above, literally on the ceiling, so that it was almost life size. So you had this sort of experience of being inside the chapel. But for me, the most significant part of that exhibition was when I left the Sistine Chapel and walked into a room that was entirely devoted to Vittoria Colonna. I turned a corner and under a spotlight behind plexiglass was the book of poetry that she had had commissioned in calligraphy as a gift to Michelangelo. I had never even seen a photograph of the book. And so it was really extraordinary for me to actually physically be in the same place. Isn't there something really special about somehow coming into contact, even if you couldn't actually touch it, you know, with, with an artifact that's from the period or belong to the person or, you know, I, I imagine it's the same sort of feeling of, as going into the Bronte house in Yorkshire or even just seeing Emily Dickinson's room here. I agree that the object, the physical objects really have meaning. And, and it's, I, I saw that also when I was in Florence, the Bonarotti house was also open. And just seeing a desk or a chair or a, a, a carved cabinet and know that his hands had touched it, you know, that's, and it was the same with this book, that his hands had turned those pages, as well as hers. Very interesting, too, is how, did, how do you feel that having had those experiences, having been able to see those things, how did that affect the way you wrote about them? I write with imagery. Like, I... I create, I create pictures when I write. And so having in my mind's eye, the actual object or the actual place 
and also having had the sort of sensory experiences, particularly when I was on Ischia, really informs how I describe those things. You were really fortunate to be able to go and travel to these places. And I, I think, I always think that it's really good if you can to have that physical sense of wherever you're setting your story and to have some contact with the historical primary sources, as it were. But it's not always possible. So what, what other ways, what other strategies do you use to get familiar with the history and to connect things so that you can write your story? Before I was able to make those trips to Italy, I was able to find a great deal on YouTube. A lot of the, the particularly Italian places have beautiful videos of the place itself. And so I was actually familiar with Ischia through the YouTube videos I had watched before I physically set foot on them. And I think that that also helped to make my actual visit there much more instructive and productive because I had taken advantage of what was available on YouTube. The same with the music of the time is, is very helpful. I know that this has meaning to you, <laughs> you know, but I quite often would listen to music from the time period as I was writing, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, in the salon that Costanza was holding one night, they might have been listening to something like this. And so I think I try to take advantage of the resources that are out there. Yes, I think we're so fortunate. In many ways, it's a little easier to write historical fiction these days because we have access to so many digitized resources. One thing readers always, and other writers actually, always want to know is something about your writing process. How do you go about doing it? What's your, what are your steps? What are your secrets? Your little tricks? Sure. I generally have topic files and character files. And once I feel comfortable that I've accumulated enough and absorbed enough, I quite often will just start writing and recognize that as I hit a point where I need to know more, I'll just I'll, I'll go look it up. I'll go do some more research. But the actual process of writing for me has not changed with, with any of my books. And what I do is I generally have a page goal uh, that I try to meet every day. And I write my first draft by hand. So generally, I'm, I, I try to do 10 pages a day, which is about 2,500 words a day. And the way I have trained myself to get that done is with a timer. And I do 20-minute writing sessions, on, and then I'll give myself a couple of minutes break, and then I'll go back and do another 20 minutes and generally, after about an hour, I'll get up, maybe make a cup of tea, and then go back. And I've been doing this probably for 20 years. So I discovered in the Sunday Times magazine an article called The Pomodoro Technique, which described using a timer as a way of focusing on a particular task. 
And the Pomodoro technique uses 25 minutes as opposed to 20, but it's apparently based on brain research that the human brain really can't focus for more than that amount of time on any particular task and that it actually enhances one's ability to get things done if you break tasks up into these small chunks of time. It's called the Pomodoro technique because the Italian who invented it had a kitchen timer shaped like a tomato and the Italian word for tomato is Pomodoro. I was very amused, wished that I had a, a Pomodoro timer, but I have a very t pedestrian one, but it works for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Especially, you must have been especially pleased because of your Italian heritage, I imagine. <laughs> so, <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been using that technique too without knowing that's what it was called. I just thought it was my brain kind of collapsing after like 20 minutes and having to stop. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so what's, what's next for you in terms of writing? Is the book you're working on now considered historical fiction? Since it is set in 1971, yes, I'm assuming that it's going to be considered historical fiction. And it's, it, it is sort of challenging to realize that that was almost 50 years ago and that I was quite sentient in 1971. So, but anyway, yes, this is a fourth book in my First Light series. And it's actually going back in time after the, the third book was set in the uh, early 21st century. But I am going back in time to focus on one of the characters from the second generation rather than the third. But I am also at the same time doing research for a second Renaissance book. Yay, have, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> in the course of, of writing Love That Moves the Sun, I encountered several fascinating women, all of whom were connected to Vittoria, either through birth or marriage. I will do at least one other, possibly a third. It depends on how long it takes me to do the research. But the, the second book will be about Vittoria's cousin, Julia Gonzaga, who had an equally fascinating, passionate, dramatic life. What I'm seeing now in historical fiction are writers bringing forward women who were mostly invisible and who dropped out of sight after the 16th century, but who are now being rediscovered. I think probably because there's been so much scholarship being done on women writers, women artists from the past. And it is interesting, you know, that there's the adage that women read a lot more than men do. And there's, I forget, I wish I could remember the writer or whoever it was who said, when he was talking about women readers, he said, women readers, and by that I mean readers. <laughs> so, so, you know, when I think back to what I consider the beginnings of modern historical fiction, I'm not talking about Robert Louis Stevenson or somebody like that, or Tolstoy, but I think of the book Catherine by, and the name is going to absolutely escape me. 
for the moment, but I will, I will put it in show notes. <laughs> but that first book of hers was very much illuminating a forgotten woman. And I think that that happens a lot. You know, if you think of all the, the you know, Boleyn stuff, Anne Boleyn and her sister and everything like that, I think personally, and I'm going to let you talk again in a minute, that historical fiction can do such a good job of shining a light in places where the academic historians aren't always willing to look. Yes, I agree. And I think that probably because we are willing to take some risks in terms of imagining their lives and imagining their emotions in ways that academic scholars, I think, are very limited in what they, what they can describe. And we, as writers of fiction, have more freedom. And I, I often get this question, and I'm sure you do too. When we write historical fiction, I get questions on how much of this is true and how much of this did you make up? And I, I did put an author's note in Love That Moves the Sun because, to address that. What I tried to do was where the facts were available and where what was known was you know, accessible to me, I certainly followed the facts. But where there were gaps, where there was no information, I was a able to take the leap and say, knowing this already, this is what I imagine would have taken place in this gap. And most of the time that was the conversations. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing is that in addition to being able to connect things up with those unknown events that, that we're able to surmise based on our research, there's very little that exists outside of letters and that kind of thing that can give any insight into what people were thinking and feeling. However, I think that, that historical novelists give themselves license because the emotions that humans feel have not changed. It's only how we express them and what we're allowed to do with them that has changed over the centuries. I agree totally with you that I think that, you know, human emotion has not changed, that we still feel the same things that our ancient ancestors felt and that those emotions are real and the modern reader can relate to them just as easily as, as a contemporary novel. Yes, uh, you know, otherwise imagine, I mean, Shakespeare, even though the language can feel archaic or whatever, the plays are still so powerful. And they say so much about human nature that it's like, you know, that was 400, 500 years ago? I've had, you know, 500, yeah. 500 years ago. Yeah. And, and they're still relevant. So, so is there anything else you'd like to say about your book or your life or the world? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I, 
I think I'm not alone in as a writer in having found this period of time more challenging as a time to write than in the past. And that may be that just my brain is just cluttered with so much else that my my writing I've, has not been as productive as I would have liked it to be in these last several months. And that's, I keep waiting for that moment. And I think what I just need to do is put my timer on, you know, <laughs> because I think I, <laughs> yeah. and, and just, just try to focus on, on creating something again, because that's when I'm happiest. And I think that that's for writers. That is that there is as challenging and sometimes it's just excruciating. It is to just get those words out. There is a deep satisfaction in writing that I thrive on. Absolutely. And, and you're, you are not alone. A lot of writers I have spoken to have met with challenges in this isolated time. And, and as we are now communicating electronically with all the hiccups and, and little missteps there are, that takes away some of the human quality of the communication. And, you know, we all need connection. And writing, the act of writing, is a way to create that connection, I think. So it, it totally makes sense that that's where your happy place is. And it's where mine is, too, when I can do it. So, yeah. So, Linda, I, I just want to end by saying that Linda has done the most amazing thing in that she has created, along with a partner, created a small publishing company that uh, brings out a certain number of books every year. And she has published me. Anyway, it's called Bellastoria Press, and you can find it online. I'll put the uh, URL in the show notes, uh, along with a link to Linda's website, so you can see all her books. And I'm really thankful that you were able to do this with me, Linda, and I appreciate having you on. And I reciprocate the appreciation. I'm really happy to have done this with you. And I look forward to the time when we can actually physically sit across from one another and have a cup of tea and uh, do what we used to do in terms of our oh, connection. Man, I cannot wait till that day happens again, but. We'll do our best until then. That's right. That's right. All right. We're just All reinventing right. connection. Yes. E yeah. Exactly. Thank you so much.